welcome to the Trade Mastermind podcast. This is the Trade Secrets series. I'll be your host, Joseph Valente, and this is the number one podcast for the trade and construction industry. We are the secret to starting, scaling, and growing your trade or construction business. So it's Joseph Valente here and we're live on another episode of the Trade Mastermind podcast. Today we're coming at you in a live location with a live audience and this is a real special um, podcast today. We sat with our head coach, Mike Green from Trade Coach and Mike is a fantastic entrepreneur. He's a businessman, um, at one point was a politician. He's a property developer, TV star, author, father, husband, mountain climber, and um, just an absolute legend. Mike, thank you for letting us come to your amazing development today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for that intro. You can come anytime if you're <laughs> going to talk about me like that. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Um, so, Mike, um, uh, really pleased to um, be here with you today. Um, you know, we've had a relationship for some time now, and I know your story. And recently, you joined the Trade Mastermind to support our clients as um, our first and our head trade coach. So, before I get into your story, I know you're a big advocate for mentoring. What does mentoring mean to you? Well, it's a couple of things, really. It's um, one of the sayings I love is, I saw further by standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you can only see the problem in front of you, or you can only see uh, the next few months, if you like, what you want to think about, if I could get higher than that, or I could get some uh, perspective on business, on life, on the issue, that would be good. And the ideal way, rather than just physically being lifted, is to be lifted by the experience, benefit, and mentoring of someone else who's been where you want to go, who's seen what you want to see, maybe experienced the problem that you're trying to deal with. And so all through my career, um, I've benefited from mentors. And the other part of it to me is education. S sometimes we think, right, done with school, thank God, don't want to do that again. Maybe we enjoyed it, maybe we didn't. And we sort of maybe do a trade and learn something, but then we think, right, the education's done. Actually, we should be working, I believe, for lifelong learning and, and looking to learn from others. And really, if you could walk the same uh, journey that someone who'd been successful had walked, uh, wouldn't you want to do that more often and benefit from the, the gains that they got on their journey? Uh, and so mentoring for me, I enjoy the mentoring. I've been a mentee. Uh, and I think everyone should find someone who can help them along their journey. Amazing. And when was it that you got your first mentor? Did, were you in business for a few years? Did you have one from yeah. the beginning? Did you get one when something went wrong and you thought, now I need some help? Yeah, no, I think, you know, we use the word mentor and coach because it's just a convenient label. But yeah. often they're in our lives and we perhaps don't see them as that. Mm -hmm. uh, they may be family. They may be friends. They may be someone who's a boss or a colleague or so on. And Actually, although sometimes family and friends aren't the best mentors, just simply because they won't be as, as tough love or honest with you. Um, one of my first mentors was a boss when I was a news, ag uh, news agent paperboy. He was the manager. And I remember the first thing that really struck me was he said, boy, go out and get a shirt and a tie. I said, oh, why would I do that? I was only a paperboy. He said, I want you to be a Saturday lad in the shop. And I thought, what, me? He said, yeah, I think you'll be really good. Now, that's a tiny achievement, but it was a step up for me. And someone else believed in me. And, and I said, well, I, I don't know where to start. I wouldn't know how to work the tools. And he said, don't worry, I'll show you. And for the first time, there was someone there who was going to say, 
you can do this. I believe you can do this. And what's more, I'm going to show you how to do this. I'm going to take you on that journey. And so I guess he didn't see himself as a mentor. I didn't see myself as the mentee, but it's exactly what he became. And I looked up to him and I respected that he was a manager. You know, managing that newsagent store to me was something that was aspirational. But he was willing to help me up and believe in me. And so I guess that's where it started. When did you get your first business coach? So the, the first business coach I had, a guy called Stuart Lawson, who um, ended up being my main mentor uh, for many, many years, had been bought into a company called Circle K that ended up uh, becoming all days, that ended up being bought out by the co-op. And he was what they know as a sort of turnaround king. So he goes into a problem business, takes it from the red uh, into the black, as it were. And I was doing some um, uh, consultancy work for him because I was a specialist in convenience at the time. <coughs> And I said, oh, you know, you, you're doing a great job here. I'm really impressed. You know, is there any chance if I could sort of buy you a lunch or, or buy you a breakfast or, you know, pay for your time, you could teach me a bit more about business? Because at that point, we'd just, um, Tom and I, uh, my business partner at the time, had just remortgaged our houses. And I think, Christ, I'm in this business, you know, and here's this guy who's a turnaround king. You know, at one point, he was the head of corporate restructuring for KPMG, earning about 18 grand a day kind of thing or charging about 18 grand a day. And to my surprise, he said, yeah, sure. Um, and he turned out to be a really tough mentor, which I needed because I don't know why. When I got mentor, I'd say, yeah, I know, but, but, but. And often we've got someone telling us the answer and we still want to argue with them. And he would say, you're broke. I'm not. You, you need the lesson. I don't. Shut the F up or listen and I will help you. And, and you know, I had the first mentor. Then I realized I could do with someone to mentor me a bit in marketing. It was a great in marketing. And so we can find mentors that are very specific or broad, but it's about someone just looking at what we're doing with the cold light of day without any of the emotional interactions in, or, or, or problems in that business and give us their perspective from the benefit of experience. It's um, really interesting um, what you've just said there. You know, and my experience with the first mentor was at 25 with Lord Sugar. And at yeah, 25, yeah. you know, I thought I knew everything. And um, <clears throat> I was forever arguing with him about, you know, what was yeah. right and what was wrong. And I look back and think, why did I probably, why, why was I like that? Why didn't I listen to what he said? And why did I always try to be right in that environment? And maybe that was because of my um, age or naivety in business. I'm, I'm not too sure, but I do think yeah. I made a mistake, um, you know, maybe not being, you know, the po whole point of a mentor is to kind of put your um, blind faith into that person. Would you agree um, that they have the answer or not? Because well, sometimes you can't see it, can you? And you're like, yeah, but I know this is my business. I know you know business, but this is my business. So maybe that's not worked. That's maybe kind of how I felt. Yeah, I, th I think sometimes you, you get a lesson. You just didn't realize it was a mm -hmm. lesson and you weren't ready to take it then. You yeah. know? And, and one of my mentors said to me, think of it like um, going to the supermarket. There's 30,000 products on the supermarket shelves. You don't buy all of them. You don't buy all of, of what you might forever need. You just take what you need at that time. And often in a mentoring session, you might not need all of the lessons that might be offered, all of the advice that might be offered. Uh, and you might only be able to take some. And to me, the, um, after Secret Millionaire, I did a YMCA, um, was one of them, a, a, a time stop locally. And I, I remember a few months after I'd carried on the mentoring, 
and Sally, who was managing it there, I said, you know what, Sally, I'm helping these guys. I've got a couple of them jobs and they're turning them down. I don't understand why when they're homeless and they say they want a job, they then turn it down when they get it. And it'd be for stupid reasons, like I'm not wearing an orange B&Q outfit. And I'm thinking, but you're bloody homeless, you know, you, you, you're choosing. And she said something that really stuck with me. She said, sometimes, Mike, their issues are bigger. They're homeless. They've got to deal with that first. They've got big family issues. They've got to deal with that first. But she said, the lessons you teach them are going in, and it's like a seed that will germinate at some point. You've just got to get the timing right. And the fact is, if you help them get a job, in two years' time, when they've sorted out their kind of foundational issues, they might think, oh, yeah, that, that Mike showed me how to do it back then. And so the lessons may not always land or germinate in that session on that day but you still take them. We never forget a single word that's ever spoken to us. We might think we do, but our brains are amazing. It takes it in. And if you can then, on a daily basis, take a few minutes to sort of think about the problems, often the solution comes. And it, 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 if it's been put in there, it can come out. So to me, that's why I say readers are leaders, because that's a form of mentoring. You might think, I'm getting nothing from this book, but you are. You just may not be taking it that day. You may not be needing it that day. It's still knowledge going in that can come out. And to me, a mentor who can say, you're not listening and perhaps force you to take notice mm -hmm. a bit more because they can see that you're not listening or you're not taking it on board or you're arguing. And that's why I say that sometimes family aren't the best because if you say, yeah, but look, I'm just knackered. They'll say, yeah, I know, that's all right. Mm -hmm. Whereas a mentor should say, I don't care how tired you are. You know, we got this session. You want this session. You asked me for this session. You're paying for this session. Do you want my, advi my advice or help or not? Because mm -hmm. I don't want you to waste my time or yours if you yeah. don't. And it's that kind of tough love that sometimes we need, mm -hmm. especially if we're strong characters. And you've all got your own businesses. You're probably strong characters. And the second thing that I picked up on, um, which was something I've learned, and you know, I'm sure the people um, here listening today are going to learn this as well, is around having different mentors um, for different areas of your life and business. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought when I went into business with Lord Sugar that because of his um, status, he was going to be a business guru in all aspects of business. And, um, you know, I, I found out quite quickly that he didn't understand how to well, they didn't know how to kind of manage and run or build a service-based business. They were manufacturing, they were technology. So a lot of it wasn't transferable, but I took a huge amount from their finance team. So it allowed me to understand finance, build financial infrastructure and so on. Um, so did there come a point where you started to then, um, and like me and Chris do now, you know, have multiple mentors um, for multiple areas of your business based on, you know, what specific things you want to learn in a section, in a sector? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes... It, it may just be that you, you want someone's advice for a one-off input mm -hmm. because it's a one-off lesson you need to learn. Um, sometimes uh, you, you, you know that someone is great at marketing but maybe not great at sales mm -hmm. or great at um, a particular skill set. Um, you know, so when I decided to start climbing mountains, you know, it's no good going to a business mentor. Yep. I wanted someone to, to maybe take me up Ben Nevis or scaffold bike or, 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 or one of the UK hills yep. uh, and teach me some of the basic skills. So, you know, some of it's obvious and you can see, yeah, that person's got this skill or, you know, I can't get beyond, you know, I went bankrupt in my 20s and, and it was a tough time and I found it hard to get beyond that. So I really wanted someone who had dealt with that and survived mm -hmm. it, if you like, yep. and gone through it. So I, th I think I'm always looking and people should always look to maybe you, you have a mentor that's got broad lessons mm -hmm. or you have several mentors that have got really specific skill sets. 
Fantastic, great advice. Um, okay, cool. So let's go back to kind of the beginning then. I know you weren't born rich. I know your story. And, you know, you've got an incredible journey. Um, how, how kind of had, did you go from where you grew up to get to where you are now? Yeah, so, um, yeah, my dad buggered off when I was four. My mum at that point had four kids, um, was told to put us into care because you know, her age, and she was only early 20s even at that point, she wouldn't be able to look after us all and uh, didn't have a home, so we had to go into a, we actually lived in a hospice for a little while because that was the only space they had, then a caravan for four years and so on. But along the way, my mum would, and I, I guess, you know, she was a strong mentor, but she would never allow us to wallow. Um, and she always showed us love. And that comb combination of sort of, I believe in you, I'm there for you, you know, this isn't where it ends, started to teach me. And, and sometimes it took a mentor later in life to put it into a concept or string of words that helped me understand it. But this isn't where it ends. This is just a destination along your journey. It's not the final destination. This is a, a crossroads, a pit stop and so on. And I remember, my, you know, my mum was tough enough that sometimes if I come home crying, what are you crying for? Someone's hit me. Did you hit them back? No, she'll get a clip around the ear. Well, if you're not going to fight for yourself, you know. And I think, yeah, but I'm crying and you're hitting me kind of thing. You know? So it was that, again, it was that tough love kind of thing. But I knew she loved me. So I knew it came from a good place. Uh, and so there was that toughness. And then going to school and looking at and starting to see, I don't know what age it is when you start to see, oh, that person's got more than me or is more happy than me or... Or, or just like has got better friendships than me. And it, it's not envy, it's just this kind of recognition that maybe there's something different, something better, something more. Uh, and so I started to strive for that and realized that um, I needed to start, I don't know how, and I wouldn't put it into these words, but I needed to start doing more of what they were doing mm -hmm. to get more of what they were getting. Uh, and so I buckled down a little bit. And, you know, then, then I was a teenager and I was a punk rocker, you know, spiky hair, bondage trousers, uh, uh, you know, looked like an idiot. But, but at the time, uh, I enjoyed it. It was kind of a bit anti-establishment. Then I had a big fight at the beginning of the summer with the, my best mate. And so suddenly I got the whole summer and we weren't talking. We'd had this big fight. And I thought, well, what else am I going to do? And I just decided, I don't know why it was, I just started reading and I started learning the lessons of the study. Uh, of the, the eight subjects that I was doing GCSEs in. And, you know, you could say there was this big falling out, this big change in my life, but it was the trigger for me to start learning because I had nothing else to do for that summer. And then I started to get hungry for that knowledge that, you know, how it made me different. And I went back to school and just took on a different um, angle, if you like. And there's, there's these pivot points, these choices throughout our life. And we can either stop and wallow or we can get up and work. And even if you want to wallow, you know, that takes you nowhere. It's, it doesn't make you happy. You know, cycling Paris, uh, London to Paris once, I was, I was late because I realized that I'd left my passport. So I had to go and get it and then I had to catch up with the guys. And so I finally caught up with them and I was with the doctor at the back who was there to sort of mop up anyone who was challenging. And I remember him saying that he wasn't a very popular doctor. And I said, why is that? He said, well, I'm a GP. He said, but people come in with problems. And I'll sometimes write on the prescription, I want you to walk an hour a day. And they'd say, what's this? What's this? And he'd say, well, you're depressed. You need to get some fresh air. And actually, you could do with some exercise. And I said, well, he, what, they wanted him to give him a tablet or a, a kind of quick cure. And he said, they don't need that. They need to get out and get away from their kind of butt. And that was one of my sayings that came from that, which you get off your butt. 
And it wasn't just the but as in your behind. It was the, well, I would do that, but. Or I know what you're saying, but. You know, get away from the butt, get off your butt and make something new and different and better. And it's always there. There is always someone who's been in your situation who can uh, show how they went beyond it. Yeah, amazing stuff. And, you know, what I just picked up from what you were saying there about the hunger for knowledge, you know, and everybody in this room um, and my experiences and um, relationships that we've created, you know, um, uh, over the last couple of years. Everybody here is hungry for knowledge. And I think people have seen that, you know, it's knowledge is key to get into the next level. And I think the the lack of knowledge or the limited knowledge creates that ceiling for you in business. And um, did you go on a journey then from when you kind of saw that actually is the knowledge that's the power and that is what unlocks the next level to starting to acquire that knowledge, becoming obsessed with how can I improve? How can I be better? Yeah, I did, but it wasn't just academic. And um, I used to criticize um, the education system a lot. I used to say, you know, stop telling um, uh, kids that they need to go to university because, you know, for some that's great. For others, it, it would, it's just the wrong environment. You know, stop telling them in university that if they do this and that, they can get a good job. And often, the, you know, I'd hear lecturers or teachers uh, talking about, in articles and things, talking about if you do this, you can get a good job, you can become a bank manager, you can become a, you know, city trader. And I'm thinking, I don't hear you anywhere telling them about getting their own business, telling them about achieving in other ways. And so I, I used to criticize it so much that, um, I started speaking at a lot of schools to try and offer a slightly different perspective. And, and then surprisingly to me, Anglia Ruskin University gave me an honorary doctorate of education of all things. I'm thinking, why would they make me a doctor of education? You know, it's like, I'm a bit anti-education. And then I realized I was only anti it because of my own experience. And actually, if I look now, something like 70% of the world's millionaires and billionaires never went to university. Does that mean you shouldn't go to university? No, I reckon I wasted 10, 15 years by not doing that. So what I'd say is the combination for me is experience, ambition, hard work, and traditional education. Because, you know, you don't know what you don't know, but the more you know, it does open doors. The more you know, the more you understand different people. So to me, it's a marriage of academic and and life and experience. Um, and so um, when I went bust, um, a mate of mine um, said we could go and live with him for a month and then we, you know, we could work for him and the, uh, the first month's pay, he'd pay for me and Jules, uh, he'd help us with the deposit. We got a flat, we rented and so on. But it was a pizza business. So we were delivering pizzas and that. It was sort of lunchtime till late evening, but I had the mornings every single day. Now the internet didn't exist then and it certainly wasn't wide and I couldn't access it. So I started to read and started to read biographies and read about people like Richard Branson and how he'd failed, 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 failed. God, he's a billionaire now. You know, it's like, so failure doesn't have to be the end. And actually the more I read, the more I learned, knowledge, education, the more I learned, I realized that actually most people who are successful have failed. They just didn't give up. And, and that's the difference. If you see failure as who you are and where you're going to end, you're a failure. If you see it as a stepping stone along the journey, you could be anything because you ain't going to go there again, are you? It don't feel good. It's not somewhere you want to stay. So actually failure becomes your, your springboard. It becomes your, the burning desire to not have that again. And you don't get you don't um, suffer falls in the same way because you don't want to be back there. So it's a constant education. I mean, anyone who thinks that they're not going to learn anymore, I think is sort of dead from the neck up anyway. So, you know, um, where can you do without your brain? What can you do without thinking? What can you do without learning? 
I, I, I see it as an end if I ever stop learning one thing or another. Who in the room here is afraid to go bust? Who's afraid to go bust in your business? Show me your hands. Get them high up. Who's afraid to, who's afraid to go bust? Because, you know, again, I think there, yeah, going bust is something or um, failing in business. Is not a lot of people talk about it, right? But um, if you're actually trying to grow a business to a level, it is very much um, a risk that can happen. And so... Um, you know, I think that failure or, or the fear of going bust holds so many business owners back. You know, what if it gets too big? And what if, I, what if it falls down? I'm never going to be able to get back up again um, and so on. And, you know, you've experienced it. I've experienced it. And for years, I remember in the early part of my business, like I used to hear these statistics and I never had them exactly pinned down. But, you know, X amount of businesses failing the first year, X amount of businesses failing the first five years. And I could always remember thinking, I never want to be one of those statistics. And if I get past the fifth year, I don't become one of those statistics. But that never stopped me from really trying to grow the business big. But when I did exit in Perna, I had to um, start again. All of a sudden, I kind of felt like, for me, the shackles were off. Um, and it was like, right, I've experienced it now. I've realized that I can get back up. It's nowhere near as bad as what I thought it was going to be. Um, and you can go again, but much um, smarter, wiser. And it never actually held me back again from going with the same level of ambition that I had previously. In fact, it's probably pushed me 10 times harder now. Um, but now I feel like a much more skilled sailor. So when you got back up, did you feel like the shackles were off um, and that you weren't afraid to fail again? Because I think it could go two ways. You could either go, right, that was absolutely horrendous. I'm never building a business again. Um, or you go, right, that was awesome. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh well, like, like everything, it's a journey, you know, and the guy who gave us the job helped us. He's still my best friend today. He was my best man at my wedding. You know, uh, and uh, he said to me, I, when he said, come, come live with us for a little while, come work with us. Um, he said, but when you, because we was up in Manchester, he was down in Hertfordshire. He said, on your way down, Mike, though, I do want to tell you, I want to warn you. When the shit hits the fan, you'll count your friends on one hand. Um, and I said, well, what do you mean? You know. There's, I've got lots of friends, I've got lots of... And he said, no, no, when the shit is the fan, you'll count your friends on one hand. And I thought, he was right, you know, that's kind of the way it happened. But you know what? I then knew who my friends were. You know, because we've all got lots of acquaintances and we live in a world where if I've got 700 Facebook friends, you know, I'm popular. If I'd ask this, if you rang them all today and said, will you lend me 500 quid or can you come and give me a hand? I'm really dealing with a big issue. Can you spend some time with me? you'd maybe find five, you know, your friend, you'll count your friends on one hand. But suddenly at that failure, I knew who my friends were. And it was kind of like a clearing out. And it, it, was, it was a clarity. And actually, I survived it. You know, there's that thing, it's going to be the end. But you realize it isn't the end. It's the end of something. But where everything ends, something else begins, if you're willing to, to go with it. And, and actually, it is, it's a kind of, you know, not want to get all spiritual that, but it's a kind of rebirth because suddenly you've got a new foundation and you, you know, yes, it's depressing. It's hard. And I, I wouldn't take anything away from that, but it's like, okay, this is the base. What am I going to build from here? And if, if you've had that hard base, you know, a bit like construction, really, the harder the base, the, the stronger the building we can put on it, the taller the building we can build on it, the bigger the building we can put on it. So actually, if you've had a hard base, uh, it, 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 it's, it's, not, it's never going to be weak again. And you be, you, as I said, you don't suffer fools gladly. You realize you survived. You, you sort of, um, 
It's a bit like learning to ride a bike, fall off, fall off, fall off, fall off, fall off. If you never got back up after the first fall off, you'd never learn to ride a bike. So to me, it's a kind of falling off. It's never something you should aim for. It's something you should have a healthy fear of in the same way of having a fear of sticking your hands in a fire because the first time you do it, you ain't going to want to do it again kind of thing. Uh, so it's natural. It's positive to have a fear of something that scares you. Uh, but it, it shouldn't make you give up and stop doing anything. You know, it should make you look at how can I do that? And so often when I'm mentoring, people say, yeah, but I can't do that. And I say, well, just imagine you could. But I can't. Well, what if you could? And it, like, annoys them. I know it does. But, you know, I'm trying to just break that... Um, kind of limiting belief in their brain that keeps telling them, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And I'm thinking, well, I've seen people with a lot less who do. So if they have, why can't you? Uh, and we've got to kind of just change that mindset. Uh, and and we're, we're, we're not born with limiting belief. We get them along the way. Sometimes our parents give them. Sometimes our friends give them. Teachers give them. Um, but there, it can all be reconnected to a position where you think, why is it I think that I can't do that? Who else has done that that's had similar challenges to me? So what do I need to do to do what they did? Uh, and can I then achieve what they achieved? And nearly always it's a yes if you're willing to put in the same work they put in. Excellent stuff. So just to stay on this point a little bit further, because I want the listeners and the audience to really, um, really take note from this, that you know failure is part of success and that you shouldn't let um, failure or the fear of failure hold you back and that actually if you do fail you can get back up again but if you don't try you'll never know what success you have um, at your fingertips and um, for me I think one of the biggest reasons that you know I failed was because I started a business at 22 I was a plumber yeah by the time I was 29 I was running a national company you know, you don't learn that knowledge overnight, you know, and I learned it on the go as my business was growing. And so it was the lack of the knowledge of building and running a company of that size, which um, ultimately became the company's downfall. Yeah, because I, you, your business is only as good as the person in charge of it. Yeah, and you are in your own way if you don't have the knowledge. And, you know, if you look at how the trade mastermind has grown and why it's become a success it was born my this business was born out of that journey that i was a tradesman running a trades business i wasn't a businessman running a trades business you know and this business has become a great success off the back of the failure or the lessons from that journey but if you guys you know, it's all, it's great to say, you know, just fail and you can get back up again. But as far as I'm concerned, you can prepare yourselves um, against that or you can counter the failure by skilling up ahead of time, by getting mentors, yeah, by having business coaches, by learning the knowledge. Because the reason I screwed up was because I didn't have the knowledge. Then after I'm like, right, I don't want to learn the hard way again. I want to learn from mentors. It's much easier. You either learn on the job and you learn the hard way or you access somebody else's knowledge. They're the two ways to learn from me. Yeah. Um, and the more that you can do to prepare now, you know, again, this is for the construction industry. And we know lots of people in the construction industry haven't invested that time in their business. They haven't invested in um, becoming business people. And so for everybody listening, I want you to take note from the point that I'm saying now is become obsessed with understanding business. The more you know about business, the more that you're going to do to protect yourself against the failure and get mentors that can see it before it's going to happen. Yeah, and, you know, I sit here and, and I'm thinking, 
here we are talking about mentoring, coaching, success, and we're, we're talking a lot about failure, <laughs> you know, and you think, I don't want to talk about failure, and people say, I don't want to talk about failure, and the only reason I, I my book is called Failure Breeds Success, and I remember I was writing it with Tino, who was a, a Sunday Times journalist, a male on Sunday journalist, and whatever, and so she was able to take my ramblings and put it into a more common sense uh, flow, if you like. But when we came to talk about the title, she said, what do you want to call the book? And I said, I want to call it Failure Breeds Success. And she said, Mike, you can't write a book with the word failure in it. You know, no one will buy it. Who wants, a, who, who wants to buy a book that talks about failure? And, and I said, yeah, but it's really important. And it's not because I like failure. It's not because I want failure. Or I accept failure. Or I hate failure. But I realized, as, because I'd already uh, become a behavioral profiler, that everything we ever become great at in life, we failed our way to. You know, from a toddler who, who learns to walk, they get up, fall down, get up, fall down, get up, fall down, get up, fall down. You watch it again and again and again and again. They don't think, sod this, I'm not meant to walk. Their desire to walk is so strong and they see other people moving faster and, and getting away from them. They want to catch up, they want to be with them. So the desire is so big, they're willing to fall down, fall down, fall down, fall down. And eventually they get up and they have those first few tottering steps. And you're thinking, oh God, they're going to fall. I want to catch them. They're going to fall. You've got to let them fall. But then they start walking. Then they start running. And then they might become an Olymp Olympic athlete. And even when they're the best in the world at running, they still have coaches. You know, why is it that a president of the United States still has advisors? Why is it that a gold medalist still has a coach? Because sometimes the people outside can see stuff about the way you're doing it that you can't see. Sometimes someone outside might not quite achieve what you achieve, but you know what? They, they've helped lots of people achieve different elements of, of what you're trying to achieve and can give you tips that might make you 1% better. And the difference between ordinary and extraordinary is the little extra. The difference between a club runner and, an, and, and a gold medal athlete is a second or a split second. And so the difference between you at your best and you at your most successful, biggest business you could ever imagine and where you are today might only be a few percentage points of changed behavior. A willingness to realize that where you are is today you, is where you choose to be based on your current thoughts, your current knowledge, your current learnings, or willing to accept where you are. And that's really hard, but if you can accept that I'm choosing to be here today and I'm where I am because of the sum total of my thoughts, actions, and knowledge... You can then say, well, actually, I don't want to stay here. I'm going to get off my butt and I'm going to learn some more. Because, you know, I, I, I see so many small businesses that could be great big businesses. But it's interesting. When Joseph was talking about different skill sets and things, I, it made me think for some reason about um, a sort of speedboat versus a super tanker or a ferry or something or a little, twi a little twin engine plane and a jumbo jet or an A380. And, you know, someone who drives a speedboat can't drive a super tanker with the skills they have today. But they could learn to drive a super tanker. It just takes different knowledge and a bit more time. And so the scale they're at at that point when they're enjoying a speedboat doesn't mean to say they couldn't enjoy a super tanker. Now, often in business, what they say is, now this business at this level, we need to get rid of that person or sell it because it takes a different sort of person to take it to the next level. A different skill set or experience set to take it to the next level. Or we can evolve, grow, learn, and become the person that can take it to that next level. But what we can't do is stay as we are and build a business. Uh, you know, I can't just go from a speedboat to a super tanker and expect not to crash it. Uh, and yet, you know, it seems obvious when we tell stories or use metaphors like this. But yet we often think, well, I don't see why they're different to me. They learned different skills. They made different decisions. They took different risks and probably more risks.
Uh, and it really is, for me, as simple as that. They're, they've got the same number of hours, 168 hours in every week, exactly the same, whether they're Elon Musk or, or on the job, uh, in the job center. They've got the same number of hours. The brain's about the same size. They might have had a different education, but it ain't all about education um, in terms of academic education. So, you know, why, why, why do we allow ourselves to, to settle for where we are? Why don't we aspire to be more, better, different? And if you don't want that, that's fine. I talk in chapter one of my book about one of the most successful people I believe on this planet is my younger brother who happily lives on about five pounds a day in India and has done for 20 years. By mistake, he's now got a very successful restaurant. But, but that was almost by mistake because he, he wanted coffee and out of coffee grew uh, some pastries and out of pastries. And now he's number one, two or three, depending on the month, uh, on TripAdvisor in Arambol, Goa region. But, you know, he chose to live on a beach for many years because he was happy. And he said to me one day, as he was walking around my garden, I was about 40, I put my arm around him. I said, listen, bro, I love you to bits, but you can't keep living on beaches for the rest of your life and just coming back for a month or two working on building sites and going again. And he said, and I love you, but I don't want your life. And I respect you, bro, but you're so intense. And I like my life. And if I died tomorrow, I'd die happy. And if you feel like that, then settle for where you are. But if you're not happy or you do want more, find a way to do it. Find a mentor that can take you there. Get the knowledge that can take you there. Because the only difference is knowledge, hard work, and, uh, and a bit of luck along the way. Amazing stuff. So I put this podcast together to inspire um, business owners. And, um, you know, you touched um, on, you know, sell, building a business and selling a business. And I know you sold one of your business um, some years back for... Um, quite a few million, which is awesome. So I want to just really dig into that because I think a lot of people, again, especially in construction, um, working for themselves, um, you know, they're starting to build a business, but they focus on the business more about that business creating and living um, for them rather than actually building an entity that one day could sell. Um, and so I kind of want to use this bit of the podcast to inspire people to say that, you know, don't just build a business to make a living, <clears throat> build a business that you can actually sell that has some value in it. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your exit and how you built it and how you sold it? Yeah. So um, inadvertently, again, back to the guy who said, don't worry, come live with us for a month, give me a job and whatever. And, and you know, the more I look at it, the more he was an amazing mentor, but he was a friend who happened to give me good, great advice. So he was a mentor, but um, one of the things that he did, and we didn't have kids till I was 35, but he, just before we'd had our um, first child, um, gave up everything. He had pizza business, he had pubs, he had all sorts, and he sold it all. And I said, mate, what are you selling it all for? You know, you're not the sort of person to sit back. He worked every day, I mean, and he loved it, and he was good at it, and... and and he's selling it all. And I said, why are you doing that? And he said, well, he says, you know what? Louise is 13 this year and um, I want to be there when she needs me to be there. And I said, I know that, but, you know, she's going to be at school and, you know, what are you going to do? And he said, well, what I've learned is that he said, um, uh, we're drifting apart a little bit. And, and he said, I realise it's because I'm so busy, busy, busy that when I go home, I interrogate her. He says, I don't mean to, but I get home and say, how's your day? Fine. What have you been up to? Nothing. What's the matter with you? Nothing. And, and, he said, and he goes like that. And I think, Jesus Christ. But it's because 
you know, she's had loads of times when she might want to talk to me, but I've got home, I've had one minute or 10 minutes, and I'm bang, 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 bang with the questions. And he said, and then one day he said, I was driving at a school, and um, he said, I'm driving along, and of course I'm not looking at her, she's sitting beside me, because I'm looking at the road, and she says, so-and-so's a real bitch. And, and he said, oh, really? And she said, yeah. He said, oh, why is that then? And, and he, he said, she went on, she told me why this was the case and everything else. He said, anyway, I get to school, she said, oh, really nice to chat, Dad. Gave me a kiss, he thought, I didn't say anything. But I realized that sometimes to connect, I just needed to be there. I just needed to listen. I didn't need to give them solutions. He said, sometimes they just want to share. They don't need a, a problem solving. He said, and especially when kids become teenagers and they got all that stuff going on, you know, physically, biologically, emotionally. He said, you just need to be there. So I've decided I'm going to sell up. I'm going to be there to really enjoy that changing time with my daughter. So at that point, my little one uh, was, was just, I don't know if Jules was pregnant or she was a baby. It was around that time. And I thought, right, when she's 13, I'm going to sell all my businesses. So long, long before I set a date, before Rose is 13, I'm going to sell the business. The business went through a couple of days before Christmas, and my girl was 13 on the 14th of January. And, and uh, so, but I'd had a goal, and this is about transition. So sorry, did mapping. you actually sell it before she was 13? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah oh, yeah. you did. I'm not so, uh, literally, a couple of weeks. <laughs> and, um, and because I'd set a goal. And, you know, I talk a lot about transition mapping. It's what I write about in my book. It's the basis of what I teach in mentoring because it's a framework that I use. But it's where am I today? Where do I want to be? When do I want to be? What am I going to achieve? And when you get a kind of rifle level focus on something like that, you can work towards it. And what I realized was that I could consolidate that money, that benefit, that business value, which will then, if I used it properly, could earn me income for, for life through investing or putting it into property or different things. But you know what? I then realized six months later, I love business, I love work. They were off to school anyway. So I chose a different kind of number of hours, a different way of working and set up business again and more businesses. And, and I can do it again and again. And I often think it's sad when people have a business. Yeah, they leave it for their family, but they never got the kind of um, peace that, that, that paying all your debt off, that having no debt, that relaxing a little bit can give them, knowing that you've, you've put something in place. And so one of my um, uh, idols, if you like, who I got the benefit of being trained for when I was in oil companies, a guy called Stephen Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, his mission in life was to live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy. And I put that at the bottom of my book because there's no shame in stealing someone else's great idea if it's there, you know. But it becomes about the legacy thing. What do you want to leave behind? And what's going to survive you? And why is it going to survive you? And sometimes we could leave our kids a business or someone a business and they could destroy it. So I'd rather leave something in trust because they didn't build it, you did. They may not have the same work ethic as you. They may or they may not. So if I was advising someone, I would be saying generally, if they've got the skill sets or the combination of skill sets, or you've got a team that can give them all that, do it. If not, consolidate it, sell it, and rebuild it again and put the new one at risk a bit, if you like, but, but take something off the table along the way that will look after your loved ones and give you the comfort uh, and peace that you're looking for. Excellent stuff. So you sold up. And um, just remind us, um, what industry was it that you'd come from? So I was in retail, then I became a retail specialist, then a retail consultant. So I ran, I became head of shops marketing for Conoco Jet petrol stations in the UK, mm -hmm. uh, chaired the Association of Convenience Stores, which represented 33,500 
small corner shops in the UK and so on. And then um, I bought a business called HIM, Harris International Marketing, which was a research marketing business. Uh, and with Tom, my business partner there, we built it internationally. We built it into different sectors, uh, built it about 1,800% and then, and then sold it. Um, so it was a research which then advised people how to have what I call fact-based consultancy. There are lots of people who would give you advice based on their um, beliefs, their interpretations, not fact. Uh, and, you know, I, after, I say to people, tell them what you did, fact, evidence that you did it, fact, or create indisputable facts as evidence for what you're going to tell them. And in research, we used to do research so we could go to a company and say, I know you believe this is right, but we've spoken to 30,000 shoppers, and this is what they actually say. This is what they actually do. And we would sell that, that data, that um, in, insight to lots of FTSE 500 uh, suppliers, retailers, manufacturers, and so on. So how... So, so you um, you built that business, you and your partner sold that business, you got a nice few million from that business. Then how did you become a property developer? Because we're sat here now in a multi-million pound development that you've done. And who in this room wants to do their own property developments? <clears throat> yeah. Um, so all of us, including myself, right? And again, we've all got skills in construction, but your background doesn't mm. sound like you had any skills in construction. Well, um, I, I did, I did labor for a builder when I was a teenager. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, and, and even back then, I loved it. And, and even then, I noticed that we, he, he took me along to a, a quote he was giving for an extension. And he, I remember him saying to this lady, oh, yeah, we do this, 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 it'll be £7,000. And then a, a month or two later, we were, he took me to another quote, and it was essentially the same size extension, and he said it's £12,000. And in the car afterwards, I said, yeah, that looks the same as the one we did the other month, and how come it was different prices? I'm really busy now, he said, so supply and demand, I can charge more kind of thing. And even then I thought, you know, business is interesting, the supply and demand price ratio. Um, and then when I was making money at the business that I sold, I had, I had money that was there, if you like, that I was producing, and you want it to work for you. Who the hell would put money in a bank at 1% when you could be earning 10, 12, you know? Uh, and if banks really knew, uh, they, they make money off of you, not for you, you know, um, with your money and they give you a tiny slice of it sort of thing. So I'd already invested that into business. One of the people I'd invested with was Spencer, Spencer Wrench, who, who, uh, who won partnership. So he and I bought this business, this building together, converted this business together. He was already in building and construction yep. and had successfully converted other properties. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't because I had the knowledge, but I knew he had the knowledge. Yep. I didn't have the experience, but I knew he had the experience. Um, and so I remember saying to him one day, I'd, I'd retired at 46, had a great summer with the kids and, you know, and then I started to annoy my wife because she'd built a life and was busy doing different things without me. I annoyed the kids because uh, I was just around more than they were used to me being around them because I was kind of like, oh, I had nothing to do. I was getting in the way of their homework, getting in the way of my wife's stuff that she was doing. And so, so I thought, I was saying to Spencer, well, I suppose I better do something. I'm a bit bored. He said, well, why don't you come and do this for me? Uh, and it's funny, sometimes life finds you opportunity. And I thought, you know what? I like the thought of building stuff, creating homes. And the, the thing with conversions is we can take, an, not an old, but a, a kind of office building and we can convert it into 102 homes for people. And they may be the starter home, they may be the, the retirement home, but we're creating homes for people. And I kind of like the idea of that. And it makes money along the way. Excellent. So you've been property investing now for what, 15 years, 20 years? 
Uh, yeah, so I, I got into it full-time about 10 years ago, but I'd started investing probably five, 10 years before that. Amazing, good stuff. And um, so how, how do you, I just wanted to talk about the project that we're kind of sat in really. So how do you, um, <clears throat> how do you get an opportunity like this? And something that I'm interested in is when a building comes up like this, what do you have to do before you know that that business can make money? So uh, the, the building conversion can make money, i.e., you know, how many apartment, how many offices was this? Uh, I don't know how many offices, but it, the original building, we knew we could cut into 88 apartments and then we added two yeah. floors, which added another 14. Yeah. So it's 102 apartments. Yeah. Okay, nice. So how much work goes in before you know that money can be made from the development? So I'd, I'd say there's probably... A month of looking at it, doing the, the feasibility on how many flats can we get out, how much do we think we could sell a flat for, is the market going to go up or down, do we think it's a bit of guesswork, but you know, where, where's it trending, mm -hmm. uh, can we raise the funds, um, and I, I'd go as far as saying that we then start talking to banks and so on, it could be six months before we get any project, but along the way, there's probably only a one in four or five chance that we'll ever take a project on because along the way, you might find it's less fundable. Some, bank, some buildings banks like and funders like, some they don't. Sometimes they like you, sometimes they don't. And, and the sad thing about people when they look at projects is because you've got to have some balls. You've got to say, am I willing to put in 5% of this of my own risk, 10%, whatever it is? Can I find someone else to put the rest in? I'm going to put a personal guarantee on that, which means that they can come after me for it if it goes wrong. So I'm all, you're always taking that risk or thinking about the size of that risk. Um, but then you go and see a bank. And luckily, back when I was reading all these books, when I, when I was bus delivering pizzas and so on, I read about Disney. And you know, I read that Disney, uh, when he was thinking about the first theme park, um, went to 324 banks before he found one that would support him. You know, and you think, Bloody hell, how many of us would go and see our bank manager say, I've got this idea, I've got this project, you know, I think it's great and I can make this and there's this much profit in it. And he says, nah, sorry. And we say, oh, okay. You know, and we give up. Firstly, if a bank manager knew how to make millions, why the hell are they a bank manager? So only ever take advice from people who are where you want to be in life or have achieved what you want to achieve in life. And I'm not knocking bank managers. It's the first job I ever did. But, you know, it's okay to get, anyone can advise someone. Everyone's a, a broke expert, if you like, but they're good. They can tell you how to bank e effectively. They can tell you the best type of bank account. They can probably put you in touch with people in the bank who can give you some business advice, but they can't tell you how to scale your business. And the bank manager, him or herself, has not built a multi-million pound business. So I then thought, well, okay, one would say no. And what I've realized now, having spoke to hundreds of banks over the time, is that sometimes they just have a box tick. And they say, right, we're not doing permitted development buildings anymore. That's a cross. So we'll look at all projects. If it's permitted development, we're not doing it. We're not doing um, uh, any, any properties with borrowed light anymore. Not doing that. We're not doing any, any properties that are residential in a commercial area. And what you realize is, you, may, you don't realize, but you may be turned down because it didn't tick a box in that bank's template that month. It changes all the time. So if you just go to one bank, two banks, three banks, four banks, and give up, you've probably just given up on a dream or a possibility because you were only willing to go to four banks. And you know, the question I often say, and I've learned this from other people is, 
how many banks would you go to if you knew that eventually one was definitely going to give you it and you'd become as wealthy as Disney? You know, his dream was so big. His desire was so burning that he was never going to give up. It was next, 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 next. And can you imagine it? 324 times. You know, Dyson failed hundreds of times in the different designs before he got his first vacuum cleaner that made him a billionaire. How many times would you give up? In fact, I remember reading that the first one, he knew he wanted to design it better because they were never that good. They'd leave bits. It was like not, not easy to work, couldn't get in corners. So he, he's, he's a, uh, an engineer and a, um, uh, what do you call it? A, a implementer or, or designer. Inventor. Yeah, and um, he said, I didn't know where to start. So often in business, we don't know where to start. We see a project, we don't know where to start. Well, firstly, you could Google it. You know, it's amazing now we've got the internet, in it? You can ask someone else who's done it. You can find a mentor. But what he did was he decided to build one anyway. And he built what is, quite frankly, a shit vacuum cleaner. And he said, it was great. Because then I could say, oh, the wheels don't work properly. I need to redesign the wheels. The handle's not very comfortable. And it's at the wrong height. I need to change the handle. So sometimes... Doing something that's not right gives us the ability to see what's not right and adjust what's not right. So he understood um, how the journey that he needed to go on meant he had to fail his way to success, in effect. The word I was looking for earlier was inventor. As, a, as an inventor, he had to go through all these different wrongs to get to it. If he'd have given up on any single one of them, and it's the same with the light bulb that took 10,000 iterations, you know, but along... Um, my brain's gone dead. Who invented the light bulb? Quick test here. Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison. And they say he took 10,000 different experiments to get there. But a lot of people don't realize he invented dynamite along the way. He blew himself up, nearly killed himself and that. So it wasn't all failure. He invented some other stuff by mistake along the way. And I'm sure that Dyson along the way thought, oh, I could use this same uh, sort of blow or suction thing for a hand dryer along. Park that, I'll do that next. You know, so even along the failures, we're finding stuff, we're learning stuff. There's opportunity that we could easily miss if we blink, or we could be open to it and learn from it and park it for the next project. Excellent, good stuff. And you know, um, being around those people that have um, been where you want to go is something that you know I think is very, very important. And you know, that's one of the reasons that you know I asked you to come and join us as a trade coach, Mike. Because I think you know you've got a huge amount of experience in construction, a huge amount of experience in business, and um, you know you've got a lot of wisdom that needs to be shared with people. And um, so, thank you for um, everything that you've um, done for us so far. And I just want to say for everybody listening to this podcast, if you'd like to um, have Mike as a mentor, if you'd like to be part of Trade Coach, um, then please get in touch with us. Okay, let us know. We have some opportunities um, for you to be able to work with Mike, which will be absolutely fantastic. Now, um, I just want to end, Mike, really on, before we do the live Q&A um, with the live audience that we've got here today, um, is what's one piece of advice um, that you would give these guys? And it could be anything about business that they can take away from today um, and implement into their organizations. So I think the biggest single thing I have to teach or coach or mentor or suggest, whatever word you want to use, people, whether it's, and I've mentored, coached homeless people. Uh, I worked with Greg Wallace for, for many years of MasterChef businesses and so on. So it doesn't matter whether you're homeless or, or, or a FTSE 500 um, director. Two things that are connected. One is you've got to learn to stop, breathe, and think. 
Stop, breathe, think. It's a really important thing. And that sounds obvious, but you know what? Sometimes we're, we're running through life 100 miles an hour. And, um, you know, if you think about it, and I learned this in mountain climbing. My mentor, Stuart, sent me off on different things like crossing an ocean, climbing a mountain, doing things, because he knew I'd learned a lesson. And on, on mountain climbing, the biggest problem you have is oxygen. As you get different altitudes, you need to produce more red blood cells, get more oxygen, and so on. And so if you just keep climbing, you're not getting enough oxygen to your brain, so you don't think clearly. If you don't think clearly, you do the wrong stuff, or you, you, you put yourself at risk. So in order to think clearly, you need to stop. So your body isn't sending all the oxygen somewhere else. It can then send it to your brain. And if it sends it to your brain, you can think clearly and make better thoughts and decisions. But that's in life. You're busy with your business. You're probably thinking, I'll do that one day, if, when, maybe. Uh, and the danger, the biggest fear, I think, is if people die, thinking I would have, could have, should have, but they didn't. So stop, breathe, think. Take some time every day to stop. And that connects to, even going back to Churchill, if you go down to the Imperial War Rooms, it's incredible. They've got a room set up where he had his, his chair and he would have his quiet hour every day. Now, I would say, knowing how he now did it, and there's, there's lots of books that write about that quiet hour and, and his thinking, um, is that he was meditating. Now, he would have probably thought, and lots of men would think, meditate, you know, that, that, that's not a male thing, that's not something I do. But you know, what he was really doing was stopping every day to ponder the biggest issue he had to deal with that day. And one day he was asked by a journalist, you know, how do you... How can you like, make the right decision with some of the big decisions? We're at war. You're making decisions that people's lives are at risk. How do you kind of get comfortable with the decisions you have to make each day? And he said, it's easy, my dear. I take some time to think each day. And she said, well, we all do that all the time. And he said, no, that's exactly the problem. We don't do that all the time. And, you know, and he didn't have the distraction of the internet, of, of social media, of all the different media, of TV, all these things he didn't have. So it's even harder for us now. But... Taking an hour or some time each day to think, right, I've got a problem. I'm just going to find somewhere quiet and I'm going to sit. And I'm going to breathe. I'm going to think about how I handle this, whether I really need to handle it today, who I might go to to help in handling it today. So stop, breathe, think. Take some time every day to quiet your brain and let yourself have the opportunity to come up with the right decisions. Amazing. Thank you. Let's give Mike a round of applause. Awesome stuff. Thank you so much. Okay, cool. So now what we want to do um, is go to the audience. So you can either ask a question for Mike um, about Mike's journey or ask a question about your business um, that you want answering. So who wants to start? Dominic. Introduce your name and your business name, champ. That'd be great. Yeah, my name's Dom from uh, PI Building Services. Um, how do you know like a mentor is right for you? Because when Joe spoke about working with Lord Sugar, um, he said he sort of got frustrated and all the rest of it. Or would you say that's just attitude towards the mentor? Would every mentor be right for everybody, if you see what I mean? So, It's a really good question. And I think there's got to be some rapport. Um, it's a form of like marriage because even though it might only be for an hour, a month or something, you're, you're putting a lot of trust in them. And one of the things I often say when I first meet people is you've got to treat me like a doctor. You know, if you give me half the symptoms or the wrong symptoms, I'm going to give you the wrong medicine. I'm going to give you the wrong advice. So if you tell me everything's great when it's really down here, you know, if you tell me there's no problems when there are problems, I'm just going to blissfully be aware, unaware of your challenges. So you've got to be really honest. To be really honest, you've got to feel you can trust. You've got to feel there's a rapport. Um, so that's important. And so maybe have um, 
ask some other people who are, who are using that person what they think about them. You know, we, we're, we're, I'm a behavioral profiler, but we're all behavioral profilers from the age of being a kid. You know, we lose that along the way. If you've got a child, and, and let's say you were my child, and I was speaking over here while, while I was talking to you, I was looking over here, you would probably grab my face and turn it to you. Because you know what? Even as a little kid, they want to read your face. They want to see if you're listening, if you're paying attention, and so on. And so we, we know that we can read that. And so read into someone when you see them, if you have a phone call with them. You know, your first instincts are often not that wrong. Do I think I could get on with this person? So rapport is really important. Honesty and telling it warts and all is really important. Um, not just what, what you're experiencing where you are, but where you want to be. Because, you know, it's a bit like... You know, if I go into um, the hairdressers and say, cut my hair like Brad Pitt, you know, they'll probably say, you got the wrong bloody hair, you haven't got enough hair, and it ain't happening, mate. You know, but, you know and, and you've you, you got to be willing for someone to be that honest with you. So often what I'd say is, go for someone who you think will be really honest. You know, don't go for someone who's going to tell you you're great and awesome and wonderful. You know, you will find most mentors will become your biggest cheerleader and, and your biggest fan but because they see what you achieve and, and how hard you're working to achieve that. They, they won't, and they'll love you in a way, but the problem with family or great friends or easy mentors is that they'll always be too understanding to the, the fact you're having a tough day, tough week, tough month, or I wouldn't want to go through that. You know, you need someone who, who loves you enough to be really blunt or respects you enough to be really blunt and say, okay, stay broke. You know, don't, you don't need me, you don't need me, I don't need this. But you know what? I could tell you some stuff. And also a mentor that's perhaps going to say that I, I don't know that I could help you with this, but I know these two or three books that could, or I know this person that could. Because, you know, there's so much you can learn all around you from different areas. And a good mentor will say, I think we're done here. You know, you probably want to find a new mentor now. Uh, and it's a bit like counselors or, or therapists. You get the feeling, am I just here for the money? And they're keeping me here and they're stringing me out. Or are they going to fix me quickly and say, you're good now, crack on? Excellent. Great question, Dom. Hello. Who's next? Colleen. Colleen from Alto Electrical. Um, so my question is, because I've obviously seen um, do the mastermind groups, um, you always ask what people's problems are, but what's your biggest problem in business at the moment? At the moment? Um, sorry, really. um, do you know, firstly, I've got to say, whenever anyone says problem, it's like the heckles go up on the back of my neck. And I did Anthony Robbins for four years and, and he put so many hooks into you and like, um, changes your thinking that when someone says problem, I think there ain't no such thing as a problem. We got an opportunity or we got a challenge, but, and, and it's interesting because you do want to change your language to say, okay, what challenge have I got at the moment? Because a challenge seems to, is often, I think of something that you want to attack, you want to go for, you want to overcome. A problem sort of stops you in, in your track at the moment. I think my, my biggest challenge at the moment is I'm tra transitioning between different types of business and it's letting go of, letting go of some to move on to new, new ideas. And so, I, you know, one of the thoughts I had when I was having my quiet hour at the weekend was um, uh, around a saying. So if I think, I don't know what to think about today, I'll look through famous quotes or inspirational quotes and I'll get one. And this was, you can't steal second base with one foot on first. 
So, you know, you can, you can actually Google quote about moving on or quote about change or something. So you can't steal second base with one foot on first. It's an American baseball term. And you know when you're playing, what do they call it, rounders in the UK probably, and you, you're hit and you think, shall I run? And I'm, my safe space is to be on a base. The minute I leave that base, I could be knocked out. But I can't get to second base if I keep one foot on first. I've got to move on. So sometimes you just got to cut it off. And I, I hate those endings, even though I know that sometimes you've just got to say, it's been great, I've loved it. It's time for me to move on and uh, look, look at a new challenge. But, but I find it equally as hard. Uh, and so I, I, funnily enough, my, the business partner of the business that I, I sold um, 10 years ago, um, I was saying to my wife, you know, I, I, I don't know, you know, challenge with, with some of these, because I've got too many things going on probably. And she said, well, you and Tom used to have your strategy retreats. She said, I know you meant you just used to go off and get pissed in Dubai or wherever. But I said, no, we didn't. We always came back with good clarity, but we did have a drink. But, but we, it was always around, have we got the right people, the right products, the right, you know, promoting them in the right way and all these different things. And we'd have drinks and we'd have a nice time and it was sunny often, but we'd come back with absolute clarity on if we got the right people and so on. And so she said, um, why don't you go and have a weekend with Tom. So 27th, 28th of this month, I'm off to Carcassonne. And it will just be a couple of days where he then interrogates me. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? Uh, you know, what you get, what you're aiming to get out of it? What does success look like? Have you got the right people? Have you, and then I'll interrogate. So we didn't do any business. We're in a couple of investments together. But other than that, we didn't do any business together at the minute. And it will be 24, 48 hours of him interrogating me, me interrogating him. And it is like a, an intense form of, um, uh, of mentoring. And I can tell you, he, he is the king of sarcasm. He doesn't pull any punches. So he, he, he will tell it as it is and vice versa. So, yeah. Fantastic. Aaron. That way. Uh, yeah. uh, Aaron from United Drains. Um, so obviously you're successful. You know your stuff. Um, but do you still get any sort of mentoring now from anyone? <clears throat> I do. So t Tom, Tom would be one example. Um, <laughs> I still interact with a lot of people who, not, not in a regular monthly with one person. So now I think of it as a mastermind group. So there's a great marketer that I go and spend some time with each year called Sandy Wilkie up north. Used to be the marketing director of Robert Wiseman, Wiseman Dairies, who have sold to Muller now. Um, there's Tom. Uh, sometimes it will just be as simple for me as, as reading a book I've read before. So Stephen Covey, I've just redone. Um, uh, he taught me once about if you were at your, de uh, your wake. So the funeral's happened, you're at your wake, everyone's sitting there, they're having a drink, and they're, they're talking about you. And he made me do this thing where he said, you've got different roles. You're a brother, you're a son, you're a father, you're a boss, you're a, an employee. If all those people were at your wake, what would be the best thing they could say about you? And I remember saying um, against my brother, I'd put that I'd want him to say he's more than a brother. He's my best friend. If ever I had a problem, he'd come to me. Um, and um, he said, that's lovely. When did you last see your brother? Uh, this is Stephen Covey. And I said, um, well, I try to see him about once a month. He said, I didn't ask how often you try to see him. I asked you when you last saw him. Uh, well, um, I've been really busy. He said, I didn't ask you how busy you've been. When did you last see your brother? I said, oh, it was about three months ago. He said, if you only saw your brother every three months, do you, you think he'd say that about you? And so equally then I've arranged to go and see my brother in India. He's very free living and spiritual and he couldn't have a different life to me. Um, uh, I'm spending a, a week with him uh, in August. So. 
Perfect. Thank you. Good question. Well done, guys. Who's next? Go for it, Mark. Um, Mark Hamblin, Architectura Limited. Uh, I have a saying that uh, the more you learn, the less you know. Um, do you think that's the case? Well, I think the more you learn, the more you realize you still have a lot to learn. So there's, there's an element of that. Um, and I think that I, 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 I wish I could find it now, but it was a little one pager about um, the ideal life would be a life lived backwards. Because just before we die, we're at our most wise and we're at our most calm. And we sort of think, you know, what's wonderful, been wonderful about my life? And we love everyone who's close to us because we're conscious that the end is nigh and we think about what's important. You know, if we could start with that knowledge, that wisdom, that experience based and the understanding of what's important and who we love and then work backwards, we'd end up getting to a point where we'd have 15 years to just be a kid at the end uh, before we ended. So I, I think there's an element of just when you're at your most wise and most satisfied um, and ability to give most, uh, you're, you're probably at your least able to effect it. Um, but connected to that, one of the things I often say with startups, I mentor a lot of startups, is um, I say that you need some really, the benefit of youth and energy and ambition in your business, in every business, and you need the benefit of gray hairs and experience and wisdom in every business. And often you find startups are full of lots of young, funky, fast people, not many gray hairs, uh, and a lot of businesses that have been around a long time have got loads of gray hairs, but not much energy of youth. And I remember telling this to a company called Nicer, a retailer um, that I was working with years ago. And um, they then took on their first 18-year-old director. It's a big business, but they took on an 18-year-old director because the research we did, we were telling them that, I can't remember the number now, but 22%, let's say, of their shoppers were under 25. And yet most of their directors were over 55. You know, so how can they really understand? How can they really be in tune, in touch with those customers, that customer base? Now, we could give them some research, but they took on an 18-year-old. It was a son of one of their big retailers, which helped, I guess, as well, because he knew retail. Uh, but he bought energy. He bought the understanding of tomorrow's customer to that business. Um, so, yeah, I think the more you learn, the more you know that you probably know 1% of what you could know or should know. But equally, you, you can take a saying like that, ponder it and think, well, that's a lovely saying, but what can I gain from it? What can I do differently because of it? What's the implication that can change my behavior today? And if I thought about that, it would be, have I got the benefit of young input in, in the way I am? I've got the benefit of older wisdom in the way I am. And am I really learning from all the different uh, mentors or, or perspectives that I could learn from? Yeah, that's, I think that's how I see it, is, is, is you know, that there is more to learn, more to gain, and you know, to learn from people like you. So. Yeah. But, but you know, just, just to add that, because things pop into my mind. I remember the story about when Henry Ford, Ford Motor Cars, took the, the New York Times to court. And uh, they'd called him stupid, so he was suing them. Um, and they said, in their defense, him suing them, that he left school at 14, couldn't read, couldn't write, therefore, de facto, he was stupid. Um, he defended himself, and he took to court a box about this size with six buttons on it, and he said, I've got one of these in my office. You've got to remember, this would be like 1930s or whatever it was. Um, and he said, I may, have not, I may not be able to read the best or, or, or write the best, he said, 
but my real knowledge is knowing my limitations. If I press this button in my office, I'll have the world's best engineer, I believe, in my office within 10 minutes. If I press this button, I'll have one of the best financial brains in America in my office within 10 minutes. He went through the six buttons and he said, therefore, my, my skill set is knowing my limitations and finding the people who can um, give me the foundation of strength in that area that I need to build a massive business. And so not knowledge or lack of it doesn't mean that we have to be lacking but recognition of it, an area that we don't have knowledge or skill set we can aim to get it or we can employ it or we can bring it in as a partnership in our business so we don't have to burden ourselves with thinking christ i'm i'm not the best or fastest learner i need to learn all this no we don't we just need to first recognize it is a limitation and think about is the solution employed is the solution brought on as an expert um, a mentor, or is it just something that I, I, I recognize isn't my strength and I need to think about a solution to some other way in my business? You don't have to learn everything. Imagine um, being in that court in like the 1920s or whenever it was and uh, being the lawyer that has to defend the newspaper and Henry Ford just gets out that box. He's like, but press that button, best salesman in the world comes in, press that one, best marketing person comes in. I bet it just went silent. And they're like, oh shit, yeah, actually. <laughs> and I'm Fantastic. Sad. I'm saddened That's by the fact want. that most journalists in the world think they can only make money from negative headlines and yeah. negative stories. So, you know, they just go for that. I don't know why, but they just go for that. And, you know, a journalist who wrote that versus Henry Ford, who would you want to teach you? Yeah, who do you exactly. think there'd be statues erected to around the world, you know? Who do you think they'd know the name of, Henry Ford or whoever the journalist was? I don't know, and I don't care, he's insignificant, relatively. It is. Okay, did you have a... Yeah? Hi, Kay Muxlow from Alto Electrical. You've alluded a lot to um, education and um, you know, anti-education or how you, how you thought you were anti-education about Henry Ford. Um, I'm not a very academic person in any way, shape or form and I actually fell into the construction industry by accident more than anything else rather than design. Um, but we are really trying to grow the business and to do that I wanted some understanding. So we've actually embarked on a level 5 MVQ and I'm not 100% sure if that's the best way for me to learn. Um, I am struggling with it a little bit, not as much as I thought I would, I have to admit. Um, but what would, if, if it was yourself looking back on your life, how would you try and get that knowledge now? So, you know, you often think, would I change anything if I had my time again? You know, in one sense, I'd say absolutely not. Otherwise, I might not end up where I am because it's, you know, it's one decision that changes everything. If, if I knew that I could, if I had the chance again, I guess the difference is I would get more academic education because, you know, just for clarity, what I said earlier was, I didn't think you need academia to be successful. However, if you have the benefit of all the things that make someone gutturally ambitious or, or, or want to learn their skill or want to be a great artist, and you could add education to it as well in the academic sense, the marriage of the two becomes unstoppable. So let's say you were a great artist and you think, well, and I know a guy called Zinsky, who I got lots of his paintings, incredible self-taught autistic artist. And um, you, know, you could say, why would he need to, to, to learn academic skills? And what I'd say is, well, he doesn't. 
But he has got to think about how much he sells his paintings for, where he markets them, how he markets them, the best way of marketing them, making sure that when de Montfort took him on and sell his paintings for £8,000 each, but only pay him 10% of, of the value, who the hell did that contract? If he had more knowledge or more experience in an academic sense of law, of finding, making the right decisions, he may have got a better share of that. So to me, you know, I, I don't judge anyone. We all start from where we are. You've got to have some passion to learn, but I would work at getting a passion to learn because I, I think that um, the more broad you are in that sense, the more it, it then feeds your speciality. Um, and also, sadly, we live in a world where sometimes qualification is the door opener. Now, when I, when I ended up running shops marketing for Conoco um, Jet in the UK and then doing pan-European for all their pet, uh, buying group for all their petrol stations and everything, uh, I lied to get that job. You know, I looked in the grocer magazine, which is where you got jobs in retail at the time, and it said graduate, in, graduate level intake only or something. And I remember going along and meeting this guy, Mike Stannard, and um, we got on really well. And uh, we had a good laugh. And anyway, to my surprise, and I'd lied, I didn't have a degree, but I thought I could do that job better than any of them. You know, I'd already experienced, I'd opened hundreds of shops with a company called Circle K. Uh, I knew retail is in my blood, you know. I knew I could do that job. And uh, I lied. Anyway, I got the job and uh, he rang up. He said, Marie, please. I said, oh, fantastic. He said, yeah, I'll get HR to, uh, to send you a letter. They sent me a letter saying, bring all your, uh, all, all your proof of education, everything with you on day one. I thought, uh-oh, yeah. here we go. I've lost the certificate. So, so I then, I, I turned, well, I, they, I knew they'd, so I, I, I then turned it down. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, I got a call from him. He said, I thought you wanted this job. I said, I did. He said, I thought you and I got on well. I thought we'd work well together. I said, I agree. He said, well, why the hell aren't you taking the job? I said, well, I lied. I haven't really got a degree and I knew it'd come out eventually. He said, oh, fuck that. I'll sort that out with HR. Don't you worry about them. You know, um, but the reality is, if, he had, if, it, if I hadn't lied, which he shouldn't really do, if it hadn't been him who was willing to get me there because we had this rapport, if he didn't have the influence to tell them that I was going to get the job, there were so many ways along the way that that door was shut to me if I didn't have it. And we live in a world that judges the book by the cover, you know, rather than I'm going to read the book and then I'm going to decide whether it's good. I'm going to look beyond this facade and see if the person's right. So I'm not justifying any of that. But, you know, the reason I now say the ideal scenario is get some good academic base. And even if you have to relearn it, get enough or make sure you've got someone in your business who can. Well, no, no, no success, no successful business is ever built by one person. You know, sadly, it's often one person who gets a lot of the recognition, but it was the whole team. And, you know, a bit like the make sure that you've got um, some, some energy of youth and some gray hairs of experience. I also, as a behavioral profile, there's four core behaviors, whether it's whether you're looking at them as dolphins, monkeys, lions and elephants or red, blue, green, yellow, or, or the different ways that different... Uh, behavioral companies will uh, define you and there's subsets below it but often we employ in our own image we employ people like us 
in a business, we shouldn't do that. In a business, we need some people who are a bit pedantic and all get in the detail. We need some people who are going to push forward irrespective of the detail. We need someone who's going to focus on the money, the numbers and all this lot and the legal. And we need someone who's going to say, yeah, despite that, we're doing it. You know, I know there's a risk, but I just know, I feel it. If, if we're all one or the other, we will not have a successful business. Excellent. Great stuff. Okay. Um, have you guys got a question? Yeah. Okay. Go for it. One sec. Go again, Andrew. Andrew Osborne, ON Construction Limited. Um, well, basically, just listening to you at, at this um, um, podcast, uh, you, you've, you've, from what you said, you've come from humble beginnings, made an amazing success of business. Um, you're, you're obviously a brilliant communicator. And through the sales thing, you said you were listening to the people to the people to you know to 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 grow that and and get everything in in right that have you i know you're involved with the the brexit thing have you ever considered following on further with that and and pushing pushing along the political line yeah look i am passionate about politics and i think everyone should be because politics controls our life we lend our vote to someone every four or five years and they're going to control our life. They're going to decide our taxes. They're going to decide what happens locally, nationally, how we're seen in the world. So when anyone lends their vote to an MP or a prospective MP without properly considering that and learning what they stand for, that's stupid. That, you know, in my opinion, that's like, you might as well give your money to someone who you don't trust, you know, it's like, because you're giving your vote and they're going to decide your taxes. They're going to decide how you live. So I am passionate about politics, but I was primarily passionate about you know, people try to label Brexiteers as racist and prejudice. And, and it, was, it made me really angry because what I think is, well, why should we just give favor to just one group, just Europe? Why shouldn't we trade in the whole world? But we were told, if you, if you buy this from India, if you buy this from Brazil, uh, you're going to be penalized on it because we're, we're... So actually, I saw the EU as more prejudiced than I ever was. I wanted to get the best trade for our country. Charity starts at home, and then the more we have, the more we can share. And we do a lot around the world to help a lot of other people. But primarily, so even though I was running for that campaign here, my strap line was Peterborough first. And it was all about, I had seen Peterborough um, have some good politicians, some bad politicians. I had seen it being a kind of safe seat, if you like. And I, I was really, five generations of my family have lived or live in Peterborough. And I wanted Peterborough to get an MP that really cared about it, that was gonna represent it. Because if you look at the job description of an MP, it should be constituency first, country second, party last it's flipped in the last 10 years i don't know what's gone wrong with it but it's party first they're all whipped they're whipping fodder they're told how to vote on everything they should be voting because you lent them your vote to get your home your village your town your city properly represented in parliament but they do party country and then constituency luckily the guy who beat me paul and i'll, I'll put my hands up and say he's been good for Peterborough he surprised me I thought he was going to be whipping fodder and and not be as good as he could have been but you know what he stood up against Boris on some votes he's been good for the city and so you know I sit back and say as long as we've got someone who's that passionate for the city and going to stand up against their party and put their constituency first I'm cool that he's the MP 
because I'd have had to put all my businesses into blind trust. I'd have had to take a massive, like 80% pay cut to be an MP, but I was passionate enough to do it for five years because I believe Peterborough deserved more. Peterborough deserved to be considered first in the eyes of any politician that was serving us. Do you know what? I think he's doing it. So as long as we have someone who's doing it, I'll stay out of politics. If they don't, because I'm never interested in going to another constituency, I'm always going to fight for Peterborough, though. Amazing. Good stuff. Um, Sophie's not back yet. So one more. Andrew, I want to come to you, and I want you to give us your biggest challenge in your business right now so we can answer it before we wrap. <clears throat> I know you like the mic. <laughs> uh, biggest challenge in business is... Sorry. Give us an intro again, Andrew. I know you're from the same business. Uh, yeah, uh, another Andy from ON Construction as well. Um, uh, biggest challenge in business is probably, I'm sure everyone will agree, people. F finding the right people. We... we, we we tender for large projects. We um, we get a lot of work coming through, and, and sometimes we're uh, worried to take it on because we don't know that we'll be able to find the right people to do the job. For example, we actually got one through yesterday. It's a big job. Uh, it's quite. Uh, some of the houses are quite detailed. There's a certain skilled trade needed to build them. And we're in two minds whether to to take it on or not because it's so difficult. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, Look. Mike, but these are the guys I was talking to you about that they've got loads of opportunity, want to grow, but cash flow was a challenge to fund the projects and people um, and so on. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's a really great point. And when I do transformation mapping, so where are we today? Where do we want to be? What are the areas we need to work in? The first sector that I always put on a map is people. And the reason, I mean, I, some of the stuff I've done with schools and, and universities and that, I talk about why the hell aren't we teaching behavioral profiling at a really basic level in schools? Because two things come out. The first thing I ever worked when I went on, the, and I've done sort of Belby Myers Briggs, Cambridge Myers, Thomas International. One of the first things I learned was that there are four really distinct behavioral types and lots of subsets. And, and the learning there is actually not everyone's like me. And not everyone really wants to be like me. Not everyone likes me. And it's like, really? <laughs> you know, uh, but we, I, that, people can joke about that. But you know what? We spend our life trying to change people, trying to make them more like us. We even are arrogant enough to believe that if they were more like me, more educated, more refined, better spoken, they'd be more successful. We're just inflicting ourselves upon them. The, when you can embrace that there are really different types, you start to say, actually... They're not being like that because they're bad. They're not being like that because they don't like me. They're not being like that because they're uneducated. That's who they are. And we can accept them for who they are. And yeah, they're a bit detailed because you know what? Their behavior focuses on the detail and wants to get it exactly right. And there are real strengths to that. But so if we could understand and learn more about people, we'd be better at relationships. If we're better at relationships, we'd be better at finding the right people. Because as a business owner, I would say if you're at the top end of a business, a board in the business, one of your primary roles as the board in the business is to be a people finder, to constantly be looking for the best possible people for your business, to, being, uh, to learn how to communicate with those people and how to be honest and say, look, you probably don't want to hear this, but you're not working at your best at the minute and I need you to be at your best. And we, what we tend to do is tell everyone else how angry we are with them, how frustrated we are with them, how they're not working at their best, but we don't 
tell them often. Or we leave it so long that when we do tell them, we tell them in anger. Or it's all boiled up and it overflows because we don't learn communication. So learning about people, learning about how to communicate more effectively is really important. Or finding someone in the business who can do that if you don't feel it's your passion or, or patience or skill set and you don't want to or can't get that skill set in your belief. Um, but I, I remember I used to do speaking at conferences a lot and I was speaking in um, South Carolina with a guy on stage, with a guy called Kip Tyndall, who had a company called Container Store. They'd had 20 years of double-digit growth in a row. They'd been voted three times the best company in America to work for. They were like Habitat, um, the retailer Habitat and stuff. But he used to say, the reason I get the best people is I pay two times, on average, the average salary. And people say, well, how the hell do you run then? Because in retail, uh, staff cost was about 10% of the retail uh, uh, sales, if you like. And he said, mine's no more. Hang on a minute, how can you pay twice as much as we are but only be 10%? And he said, because great people are at least three times as effective and productive as good people. Good people are at least three times as effective or productive as average people. Average people are at least three times as productive or effective as, as poor workers. And then he'd say, how many people have you got that are average in the business? How many people that are great in your business? And if I said to any of you now, think about your workforce and let's say, for every 10, you've got to get rid of one, otherwise you're going to go bust tomorrow. You know who that one is. If I said to you, think about the two that you would never want to lose, you know who the two are. And yet, if we know that, what is it about the two? How do we find more of that? And why are we putting up with the one that we know we would get rid of tomorrow if we needed to? And and taking that time to understand the importance of people. And I'm not, so, I'm not talking about hiring and firing. People like Jack Welsh talk about how you should take the time to find the right people. You should make sure you've trained them. You should work with them if they're not working right. But you should also be willing to let them go if they're wrong because they'll be the biggest, quickest downfall for your business if they're the wrong people. People is the most important thing. But you know they're out there. Often, though, they're not looking for jobs because the best people are being really well looked after. You have to go out and steal those people. And so, you know, whether you're talking to me as a contractor and you were, you were doing a contractor and you said, I really need an electrician, you know, who's the best electrician that you've thought of? And ask the name, then you ask, and if the same name comes up, try and employ them. You may have to pay one and a half, two times the cost, but they'll be worth it if, 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 if they're the best. Often, oh, we need a job, we need a job. The people who are available are the probably people that are available because no one wants them. You don't find the best people looking for work. You find them by stealing them from other companies. And that sounds really harsh, but you know what? If they were happy there, if they're being looked after there, they won't come work for me. I'm only going to ask them a question. And if I came up to you and said, I've heard you're doing great things. Have you got time for a coffee? And we sat down and I said, look, I've heard from several people, you're the best damn electrician, best damn carpenter, best damn secretary, best damn marketeer uh, in this area. I'd love to work with you. Even if you then said, look, Mike, I'm really happy. Sorry, mate, I'm, I'm committed where I am. You'd still feel good about that conversation because I've just told you how good you are. I've told you that other people think you're great. So worst case for me is I'll make you feel good. Best case is you come work for me. And I just want to say Mike mentors me and Chris as well. And on that note about going out and hunting down the right people. Um, in our sessions, he's been pushing us to do the same, especially with salespeople. Um, and we've gone out recently and gone, look, we're not hiring from the market any longer. We are literally going and finding the best people, paying what needs to be paid. And we're really, really starting to bring in some good people. Um, so that approach works phenomenally well. And that is the way to grow. If, if you're especially in construction where there's not a huge amount of people available, <laughs> 
the only way to get them is to take them from other people. Um, you know, they're not available in the market, are they? So um, the strategy is absolutely spot on. Guys, look, lunch is here, so we're going to wrap it up there, yeah? So we've got plenty of time. We're still going to hang around. So what's going to happen now is going to have some lunch, have a chat together. Um, I know a few of you guys are already Mike's clients, so catch up with Mike. I think Andrew and um, David and Andrew are interested in becoming um, uh, your mentees, and so is Dominic. So have a chat with those guys at lunch. We're going to be around, which would be absolutely fantastic. Um, and just get to know each other a little bit, ask any questions, we'll take some pictures. Mike's got some books for you guys. And then um, before we wrap at the end, we're gonna do a walk around the development, yeah? Excellent. And, and on, on the books, by the way, if, if you're working with me, don't take one, because I've either given you one or I'll give you more if you need more. <laughs> um, so it's for people who, who haven't got a book yet, help yourself to a book there. And um, I look forward to maybe working with you in the future, but either way, wishing you great success. And, I know that I know that I know you can achieve amazing things if you want to. Let's give Mike a round of applause. Awesome. So really hope you enjoyed that podcast. Um, it was an excellent session and something that I really enjoyed. Now, make sure you download the podcast on all the major platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google. Follow us on all social media, at Trade Mastermind or at Mr. Joseph Valente. And you can find Mike... Uh, LinkedIn basically is uh, my main um, uh, media. And where can they buy the book? They're, they, if they contact Joe Valente, I'll, uh, I'll send a bunch to, to you and we'll do it that way. Amazing, excellent stuff. Um, and don't forget, if you want to know more about becoming a, a mentee on our Trade Coach program, go to www.trademastermind.co.uk forward slash Trade Coach head over to www.trademastermind.co.uk to find out more or follow us on social media at Trade Mastermind or at Mr. Joseph Valente.